This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Ben Quigley. He's the chief executive of Everything Different. They are a brand strategy agency for some of the biggest brands in the world. You may have heard of one or two of their clients, Disney, Yahoo, Bloomberg, the BBC, MTV and News UK, just, just go down the list. If you are remotely interested in the changing pressures on the CMO to deliver short-term results, this has actually had the effect of stifling creativity in Anland and innovation because the CMO now has to be sure that whatever she does works. So they have this over-reliance on data to justify every single decision, which in turn ends up hurting the brand in the long run because, you know, what does that do to creativity, to inspire people? Um, we also discuss how the streaming services like Netflix, Disney+, Plus, Amazon Prime, and BritBox, etc., can all comfortably coexist, and how that affects the traditional TV players like Sky's business. Um, we talk about in-housing, how clients should manage their agency, which CMO has the hardest job in marketing right now. If you are interested in any of those things, this is the podcast for you. So, Without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Ben Quigley. Ben Quigley is the group chief executive at Everything Different. They are an independent group of creative brand strategy, disruptive insight and platform and experience companies. Group clients include L'Oreal, Sky, Land Securities and Gulf Bank, to name a few. He leads the way to make everything different, a destination brand for clients who share the group's purpose to always challenge the status quo and drive commercial creativity, making a difference together. They are a top 75 agency ranked in 2019 and a top 75 campaign regional agency ranked in 2019. Also, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Ben Quigley, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Uh, hi, Nathan. Welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to speaking to you for, for some time. Um, you've been group chief executive for 20 years now. That's that's quite some time. Was the plan always to get into the advertising and media world uh, from the beginning of your career? When I was growing up, I was always fascinated by advertising. It was probably one of the most um, glamorous things, to be frank, um, around when I was a kid. Uh, and I also had... Uh, a number of family members who were involved in the creative industries in, in one way or another. So it seemed to me quite natural to be going into a career like that. But I always fancied doing something that was business orientated. So mm. advertising was a, a natural move for me. And then uh, basically, as I was growing up, inspired by punk rock and the idea of doing it myself, um, I, I took the next step and got involved. I see. So there were other family members that were uh, in the advertising and media world as well not in the media world yeah my, okay. my uncle was is is a, a film a, a, a film cameraman and my my mum's a ceramicist and my, my grandfather's painter so it was sort of uh, you know, more, more generally the creative industries but um, right. certainly it was a space that i knew i wanted to go into oh right quite quite fascinating would would they have been disappointed if you weren't in the creative industry if you didn't sort of follow in their footsteps in 
to a certain extent. I think they, I think they, I think they would, I think there would have been a degree of surprise, actually. Yes, okay. I, I, absolutely. Although I think they would always have had me tuned down as the one that was going to a more commercial career. Right. So you know, the the marrying of uh, of commerciality and creativity was probably something that they saw me doing. So I don't think they were surprised. No, makes makes a lot of sense. You you work with some household brand names we mentioned at the top of the show. Your job is to make everything different and destination brand for clients who share the group's purpose to always challenge the status quo and drive commercial activity making a difference together give us some example of what that means sounds uh, very highfalutin that doesn't it but it's essentially in the in in marketing um, and in business it's all about either doing something uh, better than you're doing it before or mm. doing it different uh, and you better make sure that the partners that you're going on on the journey in this you know currently very fragmented and uh, very complicated world um, need to be the right partners and that that works both ways between um, clients and agencies so for us it's about making sure that the fit uh, on uh, in the journey that we're going to go on together is absolutely right for both parties so um, we need to make sure um, that we're as comfortable as the client is that, that the journey we're going on to make transformation that's going to be positive is, is one that both parties are committed to so that, that's what that statement's all about. Hmm. So you talk about uh, making things better or different for for your clients mm-hmm. you're, you're on a mission to help save the world from sameness I got from your website you say that <laughs> yeah, yeah. You say that you don't want to, um, we don't want to alarm you, but there's an epidemic in Adland that's known as normality. Why do so many brands act and feel the same, despite the fact that everyone wants to be different at the same time? I think we're in, yeah, yeah. No, well, I think we're at a really, really interesting watershed in in, in, uh, in Adland at the moment. Yeah. And there's been a lot of talk in, in recent times about a potential crisis in creativity. We're, we're seeing um, brands and, and clients under increasing commercial pressure to deliver more for less. We're seeing at the moment fragile consumer confidence. Um, we're seeing the 10 years of chief marketing officers reducing from an average of three years to just 18 months or so, which then naturally means that it has an impact on agency similarly and we're seeing the pace of change of innovation and technology having massive impacts as well so all of this is basically leading to the idea that um, clients and cmos are focusing more on driving short-term activation Mm -hmm. short-term sales activation Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, and that therefore that's having a negative impact on creativity and decision making um, that a lot of clients are you know um, reaching for the case study that proves that they can go down this avenue in order to have the evidence base Hmm. in order to do something Uh, and so um, that can the danger of that is that it can lead to myopic thinking and use of data which means that you end up with um, mimicry and solutions that are maybe abstract and devitalized and less notable noticeable and memorable Hmm. but at the other side the other side of that there's also an opportunity for Adlan to take back creativity and and uh, and break that cycle by showing that it's not just about context it's not just about timing it's it's not not just serving the right thing up at the right time it's also about um, using creativity to engage people and inspire mm. people uh, but that's not easy to do and it's, it's sort of like walking up a broken escalator it's 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 to an extent it's um it's it's not something that you, that you expect to do but that's the kind of mentality that you need mm. to have uh, in order to change habits and behavior to try mm. something new so because of increased risk and the increased pace of change and innovation, 
we're seeing sort of increasing sort of short term thinking by CMOs and, and, and leaders. And that's, as you said, sort of leading to a, a lack of creativity because they need the data to kind of back up any decision that, that they want to make. So am I right in saying that you're not big fans of data then in, in, in that respect? I mean, what, what role does data play in, you know, make, making creative solutions or effective solutions to client challenges? We're, we're absolutely on the side of data, but but not in the myopic use of data, mm. which is using it in a regressive way, whereby you're using the past to predict the future. Mm. You know, who would have thought that, that we would end up in the world that we've ended up with now? We couldn't use that. Uh, we can only use a certain amount of modeling in the past in order to, the, the rules are being ripped up every day through technology, through political change and so on. So all we're saying is that we need to be very, very careful about that. Data is absolutely valuable. And um, rather than being in those two schools of thought where it's all about creativity and data is rubbish or it's all about data and creativity is rubbish, actually we believe that the two need to be married together mm. so that it's all about marrying creativity and effectiveness need to sit together but the danger is if we just measure how efficient we are using data then we become less effective over time interesting see i i sit more on the b2b side of things and sort of there's a lack of creativity that's been leveled in b2b for a while um and we always look at you know our b2c cousins over the fence and go oh it isn't amazing how how creative and innovative they are over there and wouldn't be wouldn't it be amazing if, if we can sort of borrow from them but what you're saying is that in consumer and in b2c there's also sort of myopic thinking and sort of a lack of creativity yeah i, th I think i think there's certainly danger that the the rules can constrain thinking and, and stop people taking opportunities and to an extent when i say rules perhaps a degree of fear as well because so much is on the line so there's so much risk involved with investment in marketing and getting marketing decisions wrong that that uh, taking the easy way out and going for myopic thinking and lazy thinking uh, can can result in solutions which feel very very similar and of course you know the the other side of that is whether you're in b2b or in b2c see uh, as we know the way that marketing works is that we need to um you know get noticed and mm -hmm. we need to build distinctive distinctive brand assets both in b2b and b2c you know it's your classic byron sharp um, marketing stuff so the danger is that um, people are actually fearful of doing this and that agencies haven't been good enough at educating clients on why they need to do it and, mm -hmm. and that actually distinctiveness is a good thing not for mm -hmm. not for distinctiveness sake but yeah. but in turn but but obviously it's a, it's a really really powerful business tool we will we'll come back to that in, in a little bit more detail a little bit later on because you've got some really interesting ideas around storytelling and, and the importance of story for for brands. But one thing that I noticed about your website instantly when I was doing research for the you know for the show was that you've got your email address and it's just your email address front and center on the homepage. That would terrify most CEOs because they'd guard they guard their email address with their lives. But not you. What's what's the thinking there? We have um, uh, a value at everything different, which is own it. And I think I, you know I referenced earlier on that it's that it's really really important to um, uh, understand your client's business and align everything to it, um, not just not just their advertising. And and that goes for us from the top, from the CEO and the managing director. We want to make sure that we're accessible and involved in in making sure that there's an alignment between us and our clients in order to to, to deliver results. And uh, that seems to be something which is really really important to the clients that we work with uh, across across the piece. So mm. you know hence hence why, hence why we do that hmm. 
makes makes sense. Well, it's it, it's definitely different. Anyway, um, so you you say <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit about your methodology. You have a methodology called different differentology, and you say even the most riveting story is lost if you don't tell it right. So, what's the secret to telling stories right? So um, Differentology is uh, our research and insight brand. Um, so these guys um, help help um, the brands that we work with uh, find out interesting answers to it, interesting questions. Uh, and one of the key things, obviously, with research and insight is that sometimes the data and the outputs can be um, quite dry. We all, we, we've all seen death by PowerPoint. We've all seen the Excel spreadsheets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in research and insight, we need um, stories to make sense of complex data, and mm. we need to do that in a in a human way, uh, in an engaging way, and in a succinct way. You know, and so hence we've seen the rise of the infographic, we've seen the rise of the uh, of, of the video, uh, and and so on. Uh, uh, but um, at Differentology, we pride ourselves on presenting that information with with structure and with with emotion, so that we're uh, we're all about um, telling uh, telling uh, human stories in a really powerful way. Uh, and so that, that's where that's where that's come from. Hmm, quite quite fascinating. You you said that you're at, at differentology. You're the guys over there tell sorry answer interesting questions. Uh, sorry, have interesting answers to interesting questions. Could you give us an example of an interesting question that was posed and a sort of an interesting answer that that you came up with? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, one. One great example with uh, that we've that we've worked with there is um, with, with Dove. Um, Dove wanted to know how the um, the, um, the cosmetics brand wanted to know how um, their advertising was engaging with uh, with with customers. So mm-hmm. we ran um, brand tracking research to to tell them how the um, Dove Beauty campaign was 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 performing. So at one at one level, um, we're providing answers in terms of how, how well they're getting noticed and how and how what affinity they're building with their customers mm. with um, we also work with time inc so time inc's a big media brand people like marie claire and house beautiful and all, and all those kinds of media titles mm-hmm. and we work with them so they could gain um, deeper understanding of who their audience is worth so that they could connect with them better um, from a content and uh, content and advertising point of view uh, and then um, we've also worked with people like uh, mtv um, mm. so music music television and obviously that that marketplace has been disrupted in recent years mm-hmm. so we've worked with them on strategy to help work out um, what innovations might look like and what product extensions might look like to ideate what their future might look from a strategy Mm. point of view so you know hugely diverse range of stuff quite fascinating i was speaking with doug kessler from uh, velocity partners um they're a b2b technology agency in 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 london he worked at ogilvy um a number of years ago on the dove campaign on, on the dove account yeah and apparently you can't call dove a bar of soap they don't allow you to call it a bar of soap they they have a different name for it i can't remember what he said to it but are you allowed to call in in client meetings can you call it a bar of soap or do they reprimand you for that uh, um, I haven't been in the client meeting, okay. so, I I, so I don't know. Okay. So I'll, I'll ask the team and find out. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. So in, in, in the pre-interview, we talked about um, Netflix, Amazon Prime Video and Disney Plus taking on more um, market share sort of away from broadcast TV players like Sky with their over-the-top offerings. Now, you're helping the BBC launch their new over-the-top um, uh, service offering called BritBox. Is that right? 
Yeah, correct. And sort of, so so with all the eyeballs, well, or with all the competition for eyeballs from all those guys that I mentioned earlier, what makes the BBC think that they can concede, uh, succeed in such a competitive marketplace? So this was um, a project that Differentology worked on. Hmm. We were approached by BritBox, which is, um, as, you, as you rightly say, is a joint uh, venture between ITV and BBC. Hmm. Uh, and basically BritBox is going to be retailing uh, box sets of the best of British um, entertainment, you know, ranging from things like The Office and Benidorm and Gavin and Stacey and, and Les, Les Mis uh, to uh, great British content across comedy, drama, uh, period cop shows, etc. And what they wanted to know was where was how that might play out in international marketplaces mm. um, with different types of audiences, given the fact, as you say, that it's a very, very crowded marketplace. It's becoming a crowded marketplace. You know, Netflix and Amazon Prime have had it all their own way. Mm. And now there's a raft of new brands, you know, starting start, starting to emerge and launch. So so we we um, we did some we did some um, insight work for them. We found out that um, 44 percent of people in the in the UK were likely to subscribe to the offering because there's an, a huge appetite for original content and for high quality content uh, hmm. the sorts of box sets that the BBC and ITV were making available on, on, on Britbox and that would, there was also a high proportion, proportion of Netflix subscribers and over half of those who were likely to subscribe to Britbox so hmm. uh, and we did um, a lot of ethnography work which was looking at people's cultures habits customs and, and cultural differences um, so that we could give the um, BritBox a degree of confidence that not only would uh, there be interest um, from uh, a potential subscriber base in the UK but also in in other um, in other cultures around around the world including the the USA and Scandinavia and, and, and Australasia um, and and that, that and that those that those people uh, are of uh, you know a fairly upmarket mm. um, with you know with, with spending power and so mm -hmm. on, which uh, and and what kind of interest there would be. So um, yeah, it was it's it's been it's been a valuable piece in, in the launch. I think we were we were name checked at the launch. Mm. Americans love British drama. I don't know what I don't know what it is, but they just can't get enough of British drama. So I'm sure it's a huge market for uh, for BritBox. It's really interesting. So so your research found that consumers would uh, sort of subscribe to a Netflix and a BritBox as well on top? Yeah, yeah. Well, inter interesting already, it looks like um, roughly 50% um, of households have more than one more than one subscription already. Um, huh. uh, and uh, I think the average is something like where, where they are, where, you know, so there's 50% penetration already. And typically they'd have, you know, one and a half subscriptions, if you like, per household is the, is the average that it works out to. So that's, uh, that, there is potential there, but also, um, you know, things are changing fast you've got um, hbo and um, apple tv's just launched obviously yeah. there's, there's talk of, of peacock and then disney plus yeah pretend uh, um uh, supposedly coming into the marketplace so you know also these these subscriptions add up even though know, five pounds and 99 a month yeah. nine pounds 99 a month so it's going to be interesting to see how that that, that plays out in at a point where um you know where can the where can the consumers wallet um, stretch to? So, are we thinking that households are going to be subscribing to sort of two, three, four different sort of platforms? A Netflix, a BritBox, a HBO, a, a Disney so, Plus. Certainly, so, certainly the the um, the insight is is um, providing evidence that that there is room there is room for for, for several wow. options. Really, yeah. really interesting. So, what what so how does that affect? 
if we play if we if we if we if we play that out then so if if households are subscribing to Sky but they also also got Netflix or Amazon Prime or maybe BritBox, what does that do for two traditional broadcast players like Sky Television? We're already seeing uh, at the moment, obviously just um, it was November last year that um, Sky and Netflix partnered with each other and actually ran um, huh. significant, a significant advertising campaign to right. show that you could have the best of both worlds. So the linear providers are looking to keep people on their platforms mm. uh, by also providing access to content uh, um, for the, the likes of Netflix. So, you know, the uh, the, 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 um, the Sky and Netflix offering mm. was the best of both worlds, you know, mm. there's uh, the, the, their content and their content. So um, we are we are seeing that married, um, so that strategic alliances are are, are are working from that point. Um, and that's interesting to see how that plays mm, out. It's going to be interesting to see how how it evolves. Final question on on this: How do you rate Disney Plus's chances of success? Because they've just got a huge back catalogue of content. They've they've got deep relationships emotionally with us for sort of the last fifty odd years or, or what have you. How do you rate their chances of, of success with their new offering? I think they've got an absolutely great chance. I mean, uh, the the, um, the they've got an absolutely amazing back catalogue, you know, mm. including obviously The Simpsons, Star mm-hmm. Wars, you know, and and all all the obvious stuff. Bambi, there. all the rest of it. Yeah, um, Bambi, <laughs> Bambi, Bambi, exactly. <laughs> Which, and, and, my favourite show. And we're seeing. We're seeing and, you know, um, uh, most of these SVOD services, subscription video on demand services, are mm. really, really appeal to a younger audience. Mm. So, uh, again, that was a younger audience that, that's up market. So that plays really, really well. Uh, at the moment, there seems to be some confusion around when Disney Plus will be live in the in the UK and, mm. and launched in the UK. And uh, I think a lot of subscription um, services are currently um, getting to grips with challenges around licensing ar- arrangements of when they can use them on their own platforms as opposed to the, the current licensing arrangements, you know, getting all their ducks in line so that everything can launch at the same time. Um, so that will be an interesting one. And also, you know, there, with this raft of launches that are currently going on with Apple TV mm. and, uh, and obviously BritBox, um, it's going to it's going to be a much, much more competitive landscape that they, they move into. But uh, I think the fact that Disney content is um, is, is, is so is so specialised and so segment, so segmented and so targeted, um, I, I can't see that it wouldn't work. Quite quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about agency management for a moment. So we're seeing massive acquisitions happening from the big network agencies, from your Omnicoms and WPPs of the world. They're just sort of acquiring so many um, agencies and, and capability. Um, and they're trying to obviously access the CMO budgets or the C- CDO's budgets as well. Now, when these agencies have such depths to their offerings, how can indie agencies like yourselves compete with them? The networks do um, a fabulous job, and, and of course, they have uh, an amazing range of um, scale and amazing range of breadth of service, um, which is which is uh, which makes them very very competitive. But basically, we're seeing a reaction where lots of clients are wanting um, a, a different approach and looking at independence because independents um, tend to be um, more nimble, more agile, occasionally more innovative, uh, and more likely to to, to, to spark change. And, and, and dare I say it, less siloed hmm. than, um, than than the, net, the network solutions. So that provides a, a real opportunity for clients who don't want an out-of-the-box solution. And obviously, of course, a lot of indies like ourselves are a little bit more specialised as well. So, um, you know, uh, there's, there's, there's plenty of room for both of us. Hmm. 
We're, we're seeing the rise of in-housing as well. So that's a really big thing recently. How will you balance the client's drive to replace agency relationships with in-house teams? Yeah, uh, in-housing is um, is being driven, I think, primarily by two things. There's um, there's a great pressure, obviously, on cost, downward cost to deliver you know, more for less, as we're seeing across, you know, both in uh, in-house and, and 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 across agencies as well. But also, you know, very critically, it's about getting the balance right between um, what you own and what you control um, mm-hmm. from an in-housing and an outsourcing point of view. So we're increasingly seeing, and the IPA has been doing a lot of work on this to assist agencies with building a more of a hybrid model mm-hmm. so there, there are naturally things that that clients are going to want to um, take in-house um, for instance ownership of their data is, is a no-brainer you don't mm-hmm. want a dependency on an external source to um, to maintain and, and manage your data uh, and likewise for commoditized tasks that um, you know that are fairly simple to perform now for you know the more mechanized end of delivery of, of advertising campaigns and marketing campaigns why pay uh, a lot of money to an agency to do that job when you can control it and manage it efficiently in-house but we're also seeing that um, that clients acknowledge what they uh, and it seems to be quite clear what they can't do which is to you know come up with fresh ideas that aren't business as usual that could be you know, business a business defining idea for example or they're not able necessarily to have they don't necessarily have that full range of specialist talent um, available on tap and, it, and specialist expertise they need to to um, ideate and, and realize those business defining ideas and of course in-house you sometimes need a dose of objectivity as well um, and then obviously quality execution as well mm. so you know that tends to then lead you more to the ideas and strategy side of things where so you know the more commoditized end is being we're seeing being more in-housed and um, the more strategy end and ideas end is still where the space is for agency so Things are being. We are certainly seeing that um, working with our clients, it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. Mm. Um, we're we're doing stuff where we're um, doing doing the thinking for some clients, but also then helping the clients do the thinking on other things, and then um, on uh, and the, and the commoditized end at the other end. And and sometimes the basket is that we might be more at one end of the scale than the other, or some sort of balanced portfolio that works for those clients across all three. Hmm. Makes makes complete sense. Now, arguably, there's no bigger decision for a CMO than choosing the right agency. You know, a great agency can propel a brand to the front of the race, giving them a sort of a lasting competitive advantage. How can how can the CMO make sure that she's actually making the right choice when they're hiring one agency over another? I think uh, well, there are three things that that, that, you're, that you're looking for here. Um, you're looking for um, the procedural fit. Um, you know, um, that's the administrative side in terms of, um, you know, are the briefings going to be good and is the admin on the account going to be right? The professional side, which is obviously the, uh, key, the key driver in terms of, you know, what does each party bring, uh, what, what does each side bring to the party in, in, in the relationship? Um, for instance, in terms of delivering the scope and, and, and making that transformational change. Mm-hmm. And then the final, the final piece is obviously the personal and psychological piece. How are we going to work together as people? And that cannot be underestimated. If you're going to go on this journey, as I said right at the start, you need to make sure you're working with people that you feel comfortable with. And and having an honest and transparent conversation and 
chemistry session at the front end can pay real dividends there to make because often you know there's there's loads of great agencies out there who who can do the job it's about making sure that you've got the right one from the right fit point of view and Hmm. sometimes that can that can come down to something as as simple as the relationship Hmm. there's a lot of talk these days about sort of choosing clients based on your values and the sort of the brand that you emanate obviously attracts a certain type of client from a mindset or a psychographic perspective yeah is is that something that you guys sort of proactively uh sort of search for when you are looking for a good fit with a client that they align with your values and the way that you see the world uh, absolutely and there's been quite a bit of um, research work done in this space that um you know certainly one of the main reasons why um Clients will um, trawl agency websites when 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 they're when they're looking for a, new, a partner to work with is to have a look at that agency culture and values and to see what they're like in action. Hmm. So you can get a real sense of whether or not this is an agency for you through their blogs, through their work, uh, through their people, uh, and um, and that's a massive part of making that de- making that decision. Makes makes complete sense. Now you mentioned earlier the uh, the approach that. I guess most clients are sort of in-housing the uh, procedural sort of administrative tasks, the commoditized tasks and sort of out and and relying on you for the the more big picture uh, strategic thinking. What's your approach to leading clients strategically by being a sort of a think for me partner as opposed to being predominantly sort of a do for me supplier? I think that one of the most valuable tools that's being used in the industry to drive that kind of think for me relationship is to um, uh, we use um, a form of um, a, a, pl- a form of planning, which we call seventy twenty ten. This is widely used across the industry. Seventy twenty ten is basically taking one hundred percent of your marketing effort uh, and then dividing it into seventy percent, which is the key core everyday tasks that you want the agency to do, um, key campaigns. You know, think uh, big, big, big thinking on 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 major everyday stuff. The danger is that you can spend 100% of your time doing that, <laughs> um, and not and, and uh, because stuff gets in the way. Mm-hmm. The, the the 20% is the the stuff that drives additional value. It's stuff that maybe you've experimented with, but is unproven, but is showing great promise and, and needs further investment in times uh, to, to to push it forward. Uh, and then the 10%, unsurprisingly, is like let's have let's have a look at something that which could be a game changer let's make sure that we're dedicating our time to test and learn try and, and being you know, fearless to try something which which could be a game changer but might fail and and if uh, and by dividing um, the marketing activity into those three strands mm. and having lines for each of those three strands then you're ensuring that you're always thinking um, long term as well as short term you know the 70 percent being the short term and the 10 percent being the long term mm. and then hopefully the 10 percent becomes the 20 percent and, and and so on so that, so that you're feeding into that system Mm, makes makes complete sense who do you think which cmo do you think has the toughest job in marketing right now oh it's got to be the um a marketing team for the Conservative Party and Labour Party, maybe at the moment, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? Um, may, may, maybe I shouldn't go there. Maybe I shouldn't go there. Um, I think that one goes without saying. Yeah, um, so, I was so, talking about uh, brands. Uh, yeah, I'm talking about brands. Of, of course, you were, Nathan. Uh, I, I would say, um, actually, at the moment, I, I think that Facebook have got a particularly tough task at okay. the moment from, from from a marketing point of view, and that's because you've got a brand which is dealing with issues of um, privacy and. Mm-hmm. The 
the, obviously the data, the data scandal and Cambridge Analytica and mm-hmm. all of that sort of stuff, which has had a huge impact on on the user base and, and, and uh, of, of, of Facebook. Um, we've also got issues as well in the advertising industry that because it's um, a walled garden, marking their own homework from an advertising point of view, and um, obviously transparency about about um, performance and, and about pricing. So there are issues there. And also from an advertising point of view in mm. terms of, you know, a placement of ads next to inappropriate content, for instance, sexual content or, mm. um, ter- or, or terrorism, terrorist content, and mm. cause child's privacy. So I, I think there's a huge job for Facebook to do in aligning the development of the, the platform uh, and, and the brand moving forward. Really interesting. So, but with the user base, I mean, where can the user base go? Where else can they go? Facebook dominate the world. It's from an advertising point of view, it's mainly Facebook or Google, right? Uh, it, it is, yeah, and um, and obviously, you know, you've got these guys with a, an effective monopoly of uh, digital mm-hmm. advertising budget, but um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, in 2006, these guys didn't exist and, and disrupted the world. So True. we're probably, you know, both are both are now talking about the you know, the impact of the data scandal being that we're now looking to move that they're both looking at the future as being more closed networks mm. that have access to all of the services that, that are currently within facebook and, and, and google but only within the network of your own immediate friends and and, and contacts your, your, your own particular groups rather than rather than being public facing so i think we're going to see the um, user bases moving much much more into that space huh let's let's talk a little bit about the advertising industry um in a world that's increasingly sort of more digital, many people will sort of wonder what place traditional media holds and at at what point does the media landscape become so saturated that it becomes almost wallpaper in a way? How have you seen innovative companies and sort of agencies sort of break through that clutter and that wallpaper? I think I think it's 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 it's, um, it's interesting. Yeah, um, I was uh, again referring to F Week last week. Actually, mm. we're at a watershed where people are now challenging the fact that the fragmentation and the idea that um, pure digital and pure organic can can drive and create uh, create and maintain and sustain a brand. It, it, that idea is now being challenged, and uh, and it's being understood that actually it's a lot more complex than that. Um, uh, at F Week last week, the uh, marketing director at Adidas was talking about the fact that they'd um, taken out a load of their traditional ad budget and pumped it into performance marketing, i.e., last click, uh, and you know, uh, looking at um, literally um, just those those people in in, in market uh, to, to drive sales. And they actually found that when their performance marketing went down temporarily, that um, they realised that actually it was brand that was driving the majority of their sales, and their attribu- attribution model of you know, of last click was ignoring all of that. Mm. So they were only spending 23 23% on emotional brand advertising um, using traditional channels when actually that was driving the majority of their sales so having that crisis actually um, enabled them to um, think a lot more innovatively and then to, and they're now looking at a much much more balanced scorecard between that last click attribution uh, and their emotional brand advertising and the balance between traditional and digital media and that actually the, the two have a role working working together because of course in any attribution model the sale ha- has got a pathway and the pathway the last click is where the sale comes sure but there's there's a pathway that's gone before that as well and uh, we're at a point as I say in terms of taking 
talking about creativity, that the role of creating that pipeline and how it works across touch points to eventually lead to a sale is being far better understood. And, and, and again, that's a lot of what we do with our clients where we've worked with them to make sure that they understand that the funnel mm. is an entire funnel and that you know, um, brand engagement at the top of the funnel is, mm. is just as important as the last click that the one doesn't work without. Interesting. So are you seeing sort of more brands focusing on brand building um, and, you know, sort of building that relationship with the consumer with the brand earlier on, as opposed to kind of more tactical uh, campaigns that drive short term results? Yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of those that are forward thinking and mm. open, there's there's a, obviously the received wisdom is we can you know we can do stuff just with organic and with uh, and with tactical marketing and uh, tactical marketing. People are now waking up, and the data is the data is there to to show. Um, using tools like econometrics where you're looking at the, what, what the contribution has been through different channels um, to, to underlying profit are, are much, much better able to read what the balance between tactical and, and brand should be. And in fact, you know, the, uh, the, the IPA has done loads of work on this through Binet and Field in, in, in recent times. Mm. And the actual, the actual balance that is the, the most optimized is 60% brand and emotional to 40% rational tactical and that's a massive shock it's like you know when, when you're dealing with a, a lot of clients like Adidas who are spending 77% on, on tactical and that's a massive wake-up call really interesting how did how did I come up with that figure 60% brand to 40% tactical where does that come from I don't understand so so there's been a huge amount of um, case studies mm. uh, in, in the IPA data bank mm. about um, about effectiveness, effective campaigns. And what they've done is then looked at uh, and done statistical analysis across those campaigns at what the balance has been between tactical activity and uh, emotional uh, activity and dri mm. driving brand fame and driving sales. So a you know, huge amount of data uh, over the course of 20 years or so. And and uh, the, the stats have then um, produced. Markets. It varies according to circumstance and category, but it's pretty much in the, the same the, the, the same kind of field. That sixty mm. percent brand to forty percent tactical is the balance mm. and, and the yardstick. Obviously, if a brand is more if a brand is more um, is is more of a, a mature marketplace and, and a rational sell, mm -hmm. then you actually need to up the emotional sell in order to differentiate it. Whereas if it's if you're in an emotional sell, then you need to upweight the, um, the the rational sell. Mm. So, it, but but essentially, the the, the balance for for optimized performance. 60-40. Really interesting. But obviously, you know, as we know, it doesn't, you know, building a brand takes takes time. And as you said earlier, the tenure of the CMO is typically about sort of six to 18 months. So it, it needs those leaders that have a longer time horizon and can give the CMO the time to develop and grow and build a brand. That's why we believe uh, at everything different that the, the two are equally important. You, you obviously cannot, um, uh, you, when you're long-term brand building, you also need to be uh, managing the brand for today mm. as well. Mm. The, the 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 issue is that the brand for tomorrow is being uh, the, the the crisis in creativity is leading to the brand uh, for tomorrow being forgotten uh, in order to concentrate on short-term sales, and therefore therefore we don't have a balanced scorecard where brand health is is not good over the long term. So mm. that's some, that's something. That, that um, the industry has got to um, 
work more closely together to, to, to get around. And so things like F Week, um, which is, you know, clients, media owners, the IPA and so on are really, really good from that point of view, making sure there's a common language to, to break that, that rift between the boardroom and, um, and, and, and marketing so that, so that results are, are, under, are understood. And there's a, a long term culture, but also obviously concentrating on the short term. Hmm. Let's talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion. The the IPA diversity survey reports in agencies with less than 200 employees, the percentage of females in C-suite roles stand at 34.8%, up from 29.6% in 2017. Should we be encouraged by these numbers or not? I think if you look at it in terms of the uh, incremental changes from from one year to the next, they're relatively modest, um, although th- those aren't bad figures. I think the important thing from overall is to that, that figure uh, for C-suite women that you just mentioned there in 2006, which um, was 23%. So hmm. we, you know, th- th- things are definitely moving in the right in, in in the right direction. I think. You know, and similarly from people from uh, uh, you know BAME employees in the industry as well, the, the the figures from year to year are relatively modest. But again, uh, since 2007, they've doubled. So it does feel like there's a degree of momentum uh, and momentum and in, in, in change um, within the industry. Mm-hmm. You 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 mentioned um, BAME employees as well. The IPA also has a commitment to recruit 25% of new joiners from BAME backgrounds. Um, how are they doing that? There's a number of uh, initiatives to make um, advertising uh, more diverse that mm-hmm. the the IPA are leading on. I, th- I think the two that are really driving driving that. Uh, I mean, we've obviously got a, a diversity survey, um, which is obviously then measuring um, me- you know, measuring uh, the, the the changes in, in in diversity in the industry. But more uh, more importantly, in that, in terms of creating doorways and potential opportunities for um, for uh, more diverse. Uh, entry into the industry. Um, there's two in particular. One one is Creative Pioneers. Creative Pioneers is an apprenticeship scheme um, which is um, which uh, IPA agencies subscribe to, uh, and 45% of the apprentice intake that went that came went into our IPA agencies uh, in Creative Pioneers um, was BAME last year, and 50% of that were, was female as well, which is really really encouraging. And then the other uh, initiative that I think is really driving things forward is um, Ad Unlocked, which is an, an annual open day which is uh, at the end of September um, and uh, I think um, um, over 100 agencies took part in that and um, it gives um, school school kids college kids and university um, students the opportunity to uh, to take a day to um, trial life in, in the advertising industry mm. um, and that and that's that, that that's that no which that's a, a fantastic way to open doors to mm. people from uh, and, and we at everything different partnered in our Newcastle office with um, a local school so we had a hugely diverse range of people who didn't hmm. realize what advertising was about sure. from backgrounds and that, that this was something it's like that punk moment i yeah. mentioned for me personally it's like maybe i could do this maybe maybe it is accessible to me it's not it's not unreachable really interesting so last question before we get into everyone's favorite questions towards the back end of the interview um so recall the hardest time in your managerial career over the last 20 years um, as chief executive of the of the business how did you handle it and what would you do differently next time um i think that um 
over the course of that period i've been through what two recessions um <laughs> and it feels like we're um we're, the, the, the second oh, one is sort it. of is is, is now I, th- I, think, uh, I shouldn't i shouldn't say that i shouldn't yeah. say the r word but uh, in should we say challenging times right in, in challenging times I, th- I think there are two things um one is to act fast uh, to make the change that you need to in the short term uh so for instance if you've got to deal with um, a loss of a client or uh, or um you know reduced incomes or something along those sorts of lines then you've obviously got to you've obviously got to align your your, your cost bases and so on and do it and make the changes that you need to fast but the second thing is to use those opportunities then to reshape the business moving forward for the long term so you, you've then got to get it into a fit state so that you're you're um, future proofing um, future proofing and trying to take 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 that opportunity to actually emerge from that situation mm. with, uh, uh, with in, in a growth situation uh, and in in, in those periods then um, that's been things we, we've we've done some of our greatest thinking under under those circumstances and you know it, it's it's uh, it's the periods when times are tough when you actually learn more about your colleagues and about your own abilities than, than you do when things are going well and, hmm. and what your degrees your ability is to innovate and uh, and come out of a situation well so those are that's been that's been absolutely key quite quite fascinating Let, let's get into everyone's favorite questions now these are the questions that i ask all of my guests and i'm, I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to asking you them as well um all right what's the most interesting thing people don't know about your background uh i was in a i was in a rock group in manchester um and um, lived around the corner from the band the stone roses ah did you ever meet or jam together, uh, or yes, yeah, together? you uh, did uh, um, met, met fairly regularly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. And did they? Uh, did you? Did you play with them, or they? They? They were intimidated by you, obviously. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were massively intimidated by us. Uh, yeah, no. So it, just just great fun being yeah. in, in, a, in a band and uh, and and, uh, and being creative in that space. Quite fascinating. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. I, th- I think failure is um, fa- fa- failure is, um, is is part of the game. I, I, I think in answer to that one, I, I would say that actually it's um, you know I've heard a great great quote from um, Google that only ten percent of what Google does actually works from from an experiment point of view that that then actually can be translated into a product yeah. and in, into a service. I, for, for for me, failure is part of the game, and, and the advertising industry needs to get better at admitting failure and right. actually failure. You know, essentially, what what is it? The statistics are that. Um, within a marketing within marketing campaigns a third have no impact whatsoever hmm. a third have some impact and a third have transformational impact so for me you know uh, embracing failure and using it as a positive hmm. given the fact that the rules are being ripped up all the time and new rules are being created it's really from failure it's about how, what you learn from it and how quickly you learn and how quickly you apply it and, hmm. and that's something that's something that i would take from google moving forwards fail first fail often Absolutely. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Tell us about some of your early mentors. Who influenced your approach to advertising, to the media world? Yeah. Uh, I haven't been fortunate enough to have them as direct mentors, but I consider them as mentors. Um, the, the first person, uh, you know, I mentioned that um, uh, punk and post-punk music mm-hmm. was a massive influence on giving me the confidence to get involved. So um, there's a ma- fantastic graphic designer called Peter Saville, um, mm-hmm. who, uh, who is responsible for designing some of the most memorable oh, sure. rec- records and, and created items that were so beautiful that mm-hmm. you couldn't couldn't ignore them, even though they had didn't have the name of the band involved on, on the front of them. <laughs> 
were so confident that really? they, were, they, were, they were works of art. So they created their own interests. So the idea of reverse psychology and marketing came from Peter Saville. Hmm. Other people, but the other people that have really, really influenced me, um, um, I mentioned Les Binet quite a lot and, mm-hmm. and, Pitt and Peter Field, their work they've done on the 60-40 rule mm-hmm. and, uh, and on how advertising works and their common sense to um, planning and strategy just being absolutely in, invaluable. Um, and then the other person who's been an inspiration from a creative point of view is um, Sir John Hegarty in terms hmm. of just the standards that BBH have maintained year on year on year on year. Some 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 great names there to uh, to learn from and be inspired by. Definitely, um, talk about some of your favourite books: fiction, non-fiction, business-related, non-business-related, whatever. At the moment, I'm pretty obsessed with business stuff. Um, okay. There's been some there's been some great stuff out, and and uh, probably you'd be um, not surprised to hear that the first one I'm going to mention is a fantastic book by um, uh, Les Binet and uh, and Carter called um, How Not to Plan: um, 66 Ways Not to Screw Up, and it's just the most fan. It's it's basically the planner's handbook of how to do planning, but yeah, just huge slices of insight common sense uh, um, wrapped up in really bite-sized chunks that anyone can dip in and dip out of mm. so that, that that's fantastic to have that bible available um, absolutely brilliant read i also love give um, us getting... give us one thing from the book that stands out well there's the um well one thing well i mean the 66 of them but, um, <laughs> well but, all 66 um, then but, the um, c- c- certainly in terms of saving the world from sameness the the, the need to yeah, be distinctive uh, and and uh, there's a f- fascinating cha- chapter which goes into more, more detail about that and it's not differentiation it's distinctiveness we're hardwired but um what's what's the um scientist called von restorff i think it is you know that humans we're right we're hardwired to notice what's different so it's often nuanced differences between brands when you You've got lots of competing brands that are in in, in a mature space um, that, that make the difference. Hmm. Um, so so that's absolutely fascinating. And and I'm, I haven't finished it, but I'm just reading at the moment. Um, Rory Sutherland's um, uh, Alchemy, Alchemy, uh, Alchemy, which is um, fascinating reading yeah. about ideas that don't make sense. Yeah. And of course, on the behavioural economics front, how could I ignore Richard Shotton's um, The Choice Factory, which again okay. is just the mo- it just turns behavioural economics into something that everyone can understand and everyone really? can apply. How, you know, how, how to frame pricing, how to yeah. frame positive and negative biases, um, you know, um, social proof. It's just it, really and it's so 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 readable. People, you know, I, I urge everyone to get it. You won't you won't okay. get it down. Really well, whether or not whether or not you're in yeah, really accessible. Uh, more accessible than thinking fast and slow, um, Daniel Kahneman's. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm still struggling yeah, with that. Well, yeah, Daniel Kahneman, um, the uh, Thinking Fast and Slow is um, a vital piece of reading, but yeah. I, I, I can't get past three pages without, <laughs> um, without having to reread them and fall asleep. So, yeah, right. so I, I like the thinking, but I need someone else to explain yeah. it for me. Audiobook, I think. Audiobook yeah. is the way to go. Yeah, ex- uh, yes, indeed. Yeah, indeed. definitely. Well, um, any more? Or is that it? That's Books. it for the moment. That's, okay. keep, that's keeping me going. Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, so Amazon Prime or Netflix? I can't let you go without asking that question. Oh, it's got, got, got to be Netflix. O, o, Ozarks is genius. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, and The Great Hack. You know, the, for document, uh, my, my thing on um, Netflix is documentaries and, okay. um, and, and drama. And, and, they, and I think they're just doing it so well. What? Which documentaries are good? Um, uh, the Great Hack, which is um, hack. Uh, which is um, an amazing documentary about um, about the Facebook Cambridge Analytica okay. business that we were talking about yeah. earlier on, and I, I urge anybody to see it and um, not to uh, not to be affected by it. Okay, 
Really interesting. When I'm going through difficult patches, I remind myself of inspirational quotes from people that I admire to get me through. Like Viktor Frankl's Between Stimulus and Response, there's choice from the magic of big thinking, how big we think determines the size of our accomplishment or action cures fear. Do you have any of those things that you fall back on in, in, in tough times? I mentioned um, John Hegarty before. I think he came out with an absolutely brilliant quote, you know, uh, which is, effectiveness is our goal, creativity the means. And mm. you know, falling back on that when sometimes the going gets tough and you're thinking, is this worth it? Um, and I sometimes feel like I'm battling uh, an uphill struggle. Um, going back to that one, this is why I'm doing it. So, um, mm. yeah, I come back to that one time and time again. In the last three to five years, what behaviours, ideas or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? Wow. Okay. That's a, that's a tricky one. Um, I'd like to be, I think the one of the things that, um, that we've talked about in terms of the rift between the boardroom uh, client level and agencies has been um, the issue in terms of the uh, the, the um, trust and the perceived trust and skills gap. So the um, often um, uh, boardrooms are dealing with um, financial figures um, for, you know, for, for the now, and agencies are talking often about the long term, as I have been as, as well as the short term. So actually tackling those big issues from the from the business point of view and making sure that everything that you do from a communications point of view is, is aligned to those business issues and that you're all speaking the same language is is, is a critical thing um, uh, and that agencies are getting better at doing. Uh, and the second thing I think I probably added to the game is you know being more careful to take everybody on the journey with me. You know, hmm. so um, you know uh, and and being more collaborative in terms of doing that. So uh, and again, you know, with uh, lots of millennials on board, that that's that, that's a way of working that's that's um, and um, building big dividends. Hmm. You mentioned millennials. If one of them comes to you or a graduate comes to you and asks you for some advice to get into the advertising world, what advice do you give them? First thing I'd say is do your homework. Um, <laughs> that it's a it's an incredibly competitive industry to get into. Mm -hmm. um, lots of people, you know, lots of people still want to work in advertising and in marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you know, really, really do your homework and, and find out. There's there's so many great resources that are available, particularly via the IPA. Um, and uh, within that, you know, be fearless and, and, and talk human to people. Uh, I I can't recommend uh, any more highly um, the two platforms I talked about before, Creative Pioneers from the IPA and Ad Unlocked from the IPA is great doorways in. Hmm. Quite fascinating. And my final question, Ben, what does you know about marketing and advertising today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? Um, I probably alluded to this uh, th throughout our conversation, Nathan, but I'd say that it's agencies and clients need to get better at speaking the same language. Hmm. You'll get no arguments from me, Ben. Thank you so much for doing this. You're absolutely welcome. We have been speaking with Ben Quigley. He is currently the chief executive of Everything Different. Uh, we're not going to ask you to subscribe or give a five-star rating or share this episode with a colleague because our thinking is if the content is any good, you'll willingly do that anyway. We'll leave that decision up to you. Email me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Agency Dealmasters. Masters.